But I thank you all for being here tonight for our Bible study uh, for this time to give our attention to God's Word. Uh, tonight, we're going to be going through some passages that are a little bit, uh, let's say, less climatic than some of the other scriptures in Acts, but I don't believe they're any less important and obviously not any less inspired. So we as a church are going to go through these verses and through these passages. Um, again, this, this message may be more of an interlude than one of the big marquee uh, chapters that we've studied and conversations we've had, especially in recent weeks. Acts 15 has been such a big, important conversation. Back to Acts 11 and 12, such important things that God was doing in the church. Uh, nonetheless, he's still doing important things in this passage, these passages that we're going to look at tonight. Uh, just not as flashy, not as uh, kind of head-turning, but still something that I think sends home a very important message uh, about how the church and the mission that God was working and doing through his people, how they were always moving forward. So tonight we're going to be talking about that forward motion, that forward uh, sense of direction that we sense the church and we sent in the disciples, specifically the Apostle Paul. Um, and this is going to work, I think, nicely alongside of our series that we began Sunday, uh, talking about unity, because I think the church in Acts really um, models unity with a capital U. Um, we read all throughout Acts, and these passages will even more so kind of underscore and, and iterate that. But all throughout Acts, we read about and we hear these themes of unity, this theme of unity pressed and, and emphasized. And, and it's very clear from the very beginning of Acts that if not for unity, there's not another chapter. That unity is so important to the forward progress of the church and of the story in Acts. And throughout Acts, we've read phrases like this, uh, one accord, and you'll see things like it seemed good to the whole church. Uh, if you read Acts 15, the conclusion of the big meeting they had in Jerusalem, it kind of ends that way. They were in one accord that, and they made a decision that seemed good to the whole church. Uh, back in Acts 2, they were in one accord praying together um, all throughout the book of Acts. Acts 4, they were in one accord, uh, gathered together. That idea of being in one accord is just another way to say they were unified. They were united together and they made decisions that were about uniting together around what was best for the church, what was best for the people of God as they stayed on the mission uh, of God. It's because of unity and the constant pursuit of unity that the church experienced the presence of God and it's why they were filled with the power of God. We're going to be talking about this over the next couple of weeks on Sunday mornings, but we've, if you've been here on Wednesday nights, you kind of know that Acts has already been teaching us this, that the presence of God and the power of God was on the early church because they were united together and they were willing to seek him more than they were willing to let each other and things of the world distract, detract them from him and, and distance them from each other. So we've coming off, we're coming off of Acts 15. It's a watershed moment in church history. Uh, the results of that council uh, really resulted in a united church when it comes to doctrine and message. Um, Acts is not a really theological book in that it doesn't really teach us doctrine or the theology, but what we've learned throughout the middle chapters of Acts is there's a lot of conversations about race, a lot of conversations about culture, a lot of conversations about Jew and Gentile, and, and really that comes to a head in Acts 15 where they agree that the gospel, there is one gospel, and they agree that the gospel is not different depending on culture or race, that there isn't a gospel for the Jews and a gospel for Gentiles. There isn't a, 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 a thing that the Jews 
must, or the Gentiles must adopt from the Jews. The gospel is not about culture or race. It does not take its cues from, the, from tradition and, and from society. The gospel, as we already knew, but as we heard uh, reiterated in Acts 15, the gospel is as established by Jesus, his death for every sin, his spirit for every believer, his grace alone saves and transforms. That is all you need to know. That as they were reaching the Gentiles, they didn't go with a bunch of Jewish history, even though that's very important. They didn't worry about making them Jewish before they taught them about Jesus because Jesus would be enough. And for the Jews, they really had to unlearn all that stuff so they could get Jesus front and center. Regardless, Jew or Gentile, the gospel is Jesus died for our sins. He rose back to life to give us his spirit, to save us and transform us. That is the gospel. God sent his son to die and raise By his grace, he saves. By his grace, he transforms. That is the gospel. And that's what the Jerusalem Council comes to an agreement on. And they send word to the churches uh, scattered around uh, the the areas uh, above the church, above Jerusalem, Syria, and Turkey. And this was an amazing time for the church. If you read the, the last half of Acts 15, everybody's reminded why they're doing this. They're reminded what their mission was and would always be, uh, Paul and Barnabas take off to return to Antioch. So they go north back to the uh, second kind of branch or second plant of the church to Antioch to settle the tension and concern that was spread there by some of those antagonists. And they remain there because, remember, they left Antioch back in Acts 13, spent years on mission field. They go back to Antioch. That's where they realize there's some, there's some discord Uh, you know, problems. So they go to Jerusalem, they have this resolution, they go back to Antioch and they're going to spend some time in Antioch getting refreshed and preparing for what's next. So we're going to pick up in Acts 15 verse 36 and we see them, they're ready for a new tour and this time hoping to return to the churches they planted the first time. Acts 15 36 says, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. So that's pretty self-explanatory. From Acts 13 to Acts 15, they went around the, the country of Turkey, modern day Turkey. They went around Turkey, planted churches, and now they're going to go back. Um, and make sure they were grounded, make sure they were, you know, still growing in Christ, make sure that that little, um, the little drama from Acts 15, the whole Jew-Gentile thing wasn't causing any trouble. Go back and check on the guys and see how, uh, the guys and girls and see how they were doing, and hopefully, um, you know, encourage them in their faith. Now, remember, we talked about this Sunday, um, that no matter what we're going through, no matter how good things may seem like they are, that our nature is always to divide. And the church is as united as it can be in Acts 15, 36. Previously, they've settled all the confusion about law and grace. They've made a resolution. They've sent letters to the churches. Paul and Barnabas are about to go back to churches that they planted. But we talked Sunday that division is inevitable. It's impossible to avoid. We will drift from each other. Even those that, of us that are closest together, we will find that there are, will, 
Things will creep between us. Things will wedge their way between us. We must be on guard and we must be prepared to address those divisions and address those disagreements lest they undo us and lest they distract us from where God, what God has been doing and what God wants to do. We will disagree with each other. We will be at odds with each other at some point. This is true for the church locally. It's true for the church at large. It's true for you and your families. It's true for us as a country. Of course, between Christians and non-Christians, this is obvious, but this is a Christian to Christian thing. We will disagree. We will find some divisions that will rise up between us. We must be prepared to address those divisions because as good as things were for the church here in Acts 15, as resolved as they were, as determined as they were, division was just around the corner. It always is. It's how we respond to division and disagreements that matters most. Division and disagreement must not become detrimental to the mission. Here's what we've got to talk about in advance of, of this text that we're going to read. We as Christians have to have a predetermined decision to division and disagreements. Does that make sense? We've got to have, maybe you as a husband, you as a wife, you have a predetermined decision about how you're going to settle certain things that happen in your family, in your relationships, in your, in your personal lives. Maybe you have a predetermined decision how you're going to handle things at home, at work, in different fields that you enter into. We as Christians need to have a predetermined decision as to how we respond to division and disagreements. Because if we don't have a predetermined decision, we will make a decision in the heat of the moment, and it usually will not be a good decision or a decision that is beneficial to us as a whole. Does that make sense? That maybe you're someone that has a predetermined decision about how you handle your finances and how you handle unexpected financial troubles. Maybe you have a predetermined decision about how you handle problems in your family or problems at home or problems at work as an employer, as an employee. Maybe you have predetermined decisions. And the important thing that we need to understand as Christians, we must have a predetermined decision about how we respond to division, lest division determine what we are going to do and division begin to define us and become detrimental to our mission. Because here's the thing, Satan works relentlessly to sow discord and divide. Satan works 24 7 remember when God asked the devil where have you been in Job we're walking up and down to and fro upon the earth right we know that Peter says he walks around seeking who he may devour he works relentlessly to sow discourse to sow divide we must not allow these seeds that he plants because he plants a lot of them to divert the church because here's the thing, these seeds, they're going to divide us. They're going to cause disagreements between us. That's what it means to be humans. We're fleshly people. We're going to disagree. We're going to be divided. We have got to make a decision that these seeds, as they sprout, they may divide us, but they will not divert us from the mission. 
Does that make sense? We've got to make a predetermined decision that no matter what happens, the mission will not be diverted. Because the mission is more important, is most important. Now, let's read about the division that comes upon the church here in Acts 15. And it couldn't have come to a worse place. Verse 37. Now, Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. Now, you'll remember John called Mark is uh, a part of the earlier story in Acts. His mom is, uh, is, is the, uh, was the owner of where the church met in Jerusalem, whether they met there all the time or just sometimes. Back in Acts 12, they were meeting in John Mark's mom's house when Peter was arrested. They were waiting in her house to hear the, the news about his uh, freedom or his demise. We also remember back there in the end of Acts 12 is John Mark was a part of that team with Paul and Barnabas to go on the mission uh, from Jerusalem to Antioch and, and, and beyond. But Mark gets cold feet for whatever reason. We don't know. We can have assumptions, but we don't know. We're just told that he decides to bail out and goes back to Jerusalem and goes back home. And he was a very young man, so maybe he just wasn't ready for it. So while they were in Jerusalem, Mark, now a little bit more mature, begins to reacquaint with Barnabas, who had been originally from Jerusalem. And for whatever reason, Barnabas decides that Mark should rejoin the team. 38, though, that did not please Paul. Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So Paul says, you know what, Barnabas? I don't think this is a good decision. I don't think this is a good idea. Mark bailed out on us once, and, and we don't know what kind of damage that did to that mission a few chapters ago. We don't know what you know, kind of stress or pressure that put uh, the team under. We, we don't know that. We just know that Barnabas wanted to give him another chance. Paul, and, and if we know anything about the Apostle Paul, Paul was very uh, kind of, you know, he, when he made a decision, he was all in on that decision. Uh, he wasn't a perfect person by no means. So who's to say that he didn't make a decision here that was wrong? We don't know. It ultimately didn't harm his mission, which is what we'll talk about. But Paul does not believe it's the wise thing to do to bring Mark back on the mission field. It doesn't mean that he doesn't believe Mark's a Christian, doesn't believe that he doesn't think Mark doesn't have a place in ministry. Years later, Paul will write in to one of his letters and he refers to John Mark, who is a faithful disciple and faithful church leader. So clearly, Paul believed that Mark had a place in ministry. He just didn't think it was in this one. Verse 39, then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. Now, this is a big deal, isn't it? Because we've, all we've read about since Acts 11 is Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas, they have been inseparable. They have been a team. They have changed the world up to this point for the, God, for the sake of the gospel, for the church. The church has grown because of their united work. But no small disagreement takes place. And... Paul and Barnabas decide that it's best they don't go forward together. Now, I bet this was gut-wrenching for the church to hear, don't you? 
I, I bet this was very discouraging for the church here. I bet people back in Jerusalem, people in Antioch, I, I bet some of the people that were antagonists of Paul rubbed their hands together and were excited about this because they thought this might do a damage to the church. I, I bet many of the church leaders were worried that the church might be set back because of this. But the story doesn't stop there. It says that Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, which is one of the earliest uh, church plants that they made together. Saul, or Paul, chooses Silas, who's going to become a household name going forward, chooses Silas and departed and being commended by the brethren to the grace of God, went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. So let's talk about this disagreement between the two leaders of the church, the two leaders of this mission that the church was on. And you can imagine again how this could have been. This could have been terribly detrimental to the church's work, their ambition, and the spirit and the morale of the movement. Uh, it, could have been, it could have severely diverted the work. It could have delayed the spread of the gospel and the progress and the momentum that has been building and building for chapters and for years. Now, I want to be very delicate and I want to be very intentional with my words as we break this down. Because this is a big church issue. This is a universal church at large issue. But I believe it has implications and I believe it has applications for the church on a small and local level. Uh, as in, in Acts, this scenario did not happen on a local level. This is a top of the church you know, situation. Um, the growth and expansion of the church was, was, was impacted by this, not for the worse, um, but it, this was at the top. This wasn't a local church split. This was a, you know, mission, missionary team split, but I believe there's applications that we can pull from on a local level. Um, first of all, I want to establish what I believe is the primary interpretation of the passage. Um, I don't talk about this a lot, but this is something that you should know. The Bible, every passage of scripture has one primary interpretation, but many applications. One primary interpretation as in this is what it's saying theologically. This is what it's saying doctrinally, but there's many applications that we can pull from. That's why we'll look at a, a, a particular text four or five different times and we might get four or five different messages from it. But ultimately there's one primary interpretation. So I want to talk about that primary interpretation before we move on. The dynamic duo of Paul and Barnabas ends here, but the work of both is far from over. It's easy to see Paul as the most important character at this point. It's easy to look at Paul as the one who is right and Barnabas as the one who is wrong because we love to see who's right and wrong. We love to take sides. We do that as, as human beings. And it's obvious, for obvious reasons, we look at Paul and say, he's the guy so clearly Barnabas made a bad decision here. I mean, that was a dumb decision, Barnabas. Why would you break up the team? This is like a, you know, Super Bowl winning duo that, you know, after years and years of, of trophies, why would they split up? But sometimes it happens ultimately, doesn't it? Um, in sports and in politics and in all sorts of scenarios. Uh, but this is much bigger than that, of course. Um, it, it's easy to look at Paul as the guy who made the right decision. Barnabas is the guy who just made a woefully bad decision. But I want to make sure that we don't throw Barnabas or we don't cut Barnabas short because Barnabas has been a big major player so far in church history. Uh, Barnabas, we're first introduced to back in Acts 4. Barnabas is the guy who had a bunch of land that as a Levite he shouldn't have had, but he inherited somehow, someway. He sold that land and he gave a bunch of money to the early church. And it's with that early capital the church was able to do a lot of great things and was able to build up and ultimately 
plant a church in Antioch. Barnabas also was one of the leaders of the church at Antioch. And it was also Barnabas who discipled a new convert, Saul, we know him as Paul. So before we look at Barnabas as just this, well, man, he just made a bad decision. Who's this guy? Barnabas was a major player in the early church. And I know it's quick. we're quick to look at Paul as the guy, but Barnabas was as important, if not more important, in the early days than even Paul. Now, it's easy to forget that and, and now see him as out of God's will, making some grave mistake. But I don't think that's the case. And I don't think that's what God wants us to do here. Um, this is an example of two godly men having two different earthly opinions. And neither of them feeling as if they were out of God's will. Because I don't think Barnabas would have made a decision that he felt like was out of God's will and, and not repented of it. And I don't think Paul was making a decision that he thought was out of God's will. Both of these men thought they were right. Neither of them are affirmed by God as right or more right than the other. And I know our flesh and commentaries, and we all try to make to figure it out. Was Barnabas wrong? Was Paul wrong? We love to label things like that, don't we? But listen, this was a judgment that it, it, it's on a lower tier than some theological or doctrinal issue. This isn't a split up because they were arguing about the Bible or arguing about Jesus. They're not arguing about things that are very, very important. This is a personnel decision. This is, we should take this guy. No, we shouldn't take that guy. So I don't, wanna, I don't want this to become some sort of major theological doctrinal issue because that's not what this is. And I think sometimes on the local level, things that are not at all major get brought up to, the, get brought up to that level. And that's where we all get crossed up and things get out of control. We'll get there in a minute. I'm sure that many did not agree with Barnabas back when he gave Paul a chance to be on his team. I'm sure that many thought Barnabas was making a bad decision when he brought the new fresh off the murder field, right? Uh, Paul, Saul of Tarsus. I'm sure many thought Barnabas was crazy for giving Paul a chance. And while Paul clearly had spiritual insight, who's to say Barnabas didn't see Mark, didn't see in Mark what he saw in Paul all those years before? Nonetheless, both of them wanted to stay together. Neither of them had a spirit of division about them. Neither were trying to harm the greater movement. And that's what's so important about this disagreement. This disagreement did not harm the mission. Some disagreements can, and some disagreements do, but this one didn't. So before we vilify one or the other, I think we should just let this be what it is. A disagreement that didn't divide the movement, but actually doubled the efforts. Do you see that? Because what happens after this, after the split up? Barnabas goes to Cyprus and Paul goes to Syria. Both of them said, listen, we can't be together, but we're not stopping the mission. Do you see that? They disagreed, they were divided, but they kept moving forward. So many of us, when we disagree and we divide, we stop. But these two said, nah, we don't agree, but we agree with Jesus and we're moving forward and neither of us are gonna let this hinder the movement. This is so crucial 
Because from here on, we have Barnabas and Mark on one mission field and Paul and Cyrus on another mission field. Now, I want to bring this to a local level and I want to apply this and understand it on a local level because we as a local church and as local churches, we are all too familiar with disagreement and division, aren't we? But what happens and on the local level is often different than what happened in this scenario because in this scenario, they kept moving forward. But on local levels, when we divide and disagree, we just stop. Why is that? Here's what I think. It always comes down to motive. Motive matters most. Motive matters most. It makes all the difference regarding the momentum of God's movement. Both Paul and Barnabas, from what we know, genuinely wanted what was best. This wasn't a personal squabble about the petty things that local churches often get crossed up about. This was a personnel decision that ultimately split them up, but it did not hinder them. It did not stop the movement. Their motives remained on the gospel. Now, you see, in the local church, we often elevate minor issues and make major deals about them. We often elevate minor issues and assume they carry major implications. It can be that we've had a couple of bad months and we're feeling down and the devil will let that drive us away from a church or drive us away from the church. It can be that we just disagree with a few decisions and we allow that to become a major hindrance for us. So I think the application for us here is that we cannot and we should not let minor things disrupt our fellowship and partnership with the church and ministry because so often this happens. We disagree, we divide, and it disrupts our fellowship and it disrupts our partnership and it disrupts the movement. In the event that we do separate from a particular place or a particular movement, that's okay. But we best feel already led to go in a particular direction or we must already have that decision. Hey, this might have separated me from here, but I'm still on the mission. I'm still moving forward. I'm still working for the movement of God. I'm still united around the mission. So often when we have disagreements and division on a local level, it just ends up just in really bad kind of soured relationships and it ultimately just hurts the church but you know God is not in that he's nowhere near that and when we have these disagreements and divisions and we end up kind of on cinder blocks we end up kind of stunted in our growth and we end up kind of you know out or off of the mission field and out of God's will and think about this how many people how many people allow little minor things to just completely derail their faithfulness to God and their ministry in the the kingdom of God. Happens to all of us. But here's what I believe is a pretty clear word from God. God never leads us into the wilderness. He never. Impatience does. Impulsiveness does. Disobedience does. But God does not say, oh, I don't know where I want you to go. Just go out here and wander around. God doesn't do that. Now you say, well, the children of Israel went to the wilderness. Not because God wanted them to. The, the, the children of Israel could have taken a 14-day journey to the promised land. But because of their impatience and impulsiveness and disobedience, they spent 40 years wandering in the middle of nowhere. So 
neither Paul nor Barnabas ended up derailed from their mission. Both of them remained determined as ever to press forward. Both of them had motives as strong as ever in the right place as ever. So anytime we find ourselves in disagreement with the church, and when I say the church, I mean the church as the Bible talks about it, church at large, or the church locally, and there's a lot of churches locally, so it's easy to disagree with them. Anytime you find yourself disagreeing with the church, may our decision never be to divert from or depart from the mission. Because here's the thing, as a Christian, whether we are a part of a certain church, whether we go to the same church all the time, our mission does not change. Does it? If we are a part of the church, the body of Christ, we're on a mission field. And if we're on the mission field, we should be a part of a church. That's another story. But if we are on mission, we're part of the church, then little disagreements and little divisions should not divert us or derail us from that mission. We must remain united and unified around the kingdom agenda. We may not always agree with each other, but what did we learn Sunday? We must agree with Jesus more than we disagree with each other. What would happen if God's people all would get in a room together and even if they disagree with everyone else in the room, they agree with Jesus? And because we agree with Jesus, we've got to deal with each other. And we may all go in different directions for the kingdom of God and for the glory of God and for the work of God, but at least we're all going forward, right? We may not always agree with each other, but that's never going to cause us and it cannot cause us to disagree with Jesus and his will for our lives, which is always that we remain involved on his mission locally and of course, universally. At the end of the disagreement, Paul and, uh, or Barnabas and Mark go to Cyprus. Paul and Silas go to Turkey, proving neither allowed this to hinder their mission. There's, the story focuses on Paul from here on out. The next passage introduces us to another new character. Let's read that quickly. Then he came to Derbe in Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of, and by the brethren... Uh, uh, well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to, make, wanted to have him go on with him and he took him, circumcised him because of the Jews who were in the region for they know his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the church were strengthened in faith and increased in number daily." Remember back a few weeks ago, we talked about Paul's all things to all people mantra from 1 Corinthians 9. When he changed his name, we see this strategy continue as he encourages Timothy to make decisions that may not be what he thinks he needs to do, but this is for the mission. It's for the sake of the gospel. Um, we see the result of that is the church is getting stronger and the church is growing in number. Now, that's a theme that we've heard over the last few passages. The church grows in faith. The church grows in number, which we shouldn't move past too quickly. Through every event and acts, God was working to strengthen the faith of his people. Maybe you wonder, how is our faith strengthened? Our faith is strengthened when we remain committed to the mission 
even when, especially when we feel stretched out of our comfort zone. You know what being stretched feels like. Doesn't feel good, does it? Let's try to do that to everybody before you leave. You, we'll all walk out really quickly, right? No one likes to be stretched physically. That's kind of weird to think about. But spiritually or, or, or metaphorically, nobody likes to be stretched from their comfort zone. But that's how your faith is strengthened. What does it mean to be stretched? Well, it means... Even when things are difficult, we continue to make Christ known. We refuse to allow small things to hinder the most important thing. We continue to choose spirit over flesh. That's how God strengthens our faith. When it may feel like we're being stretched, we continue to make Christ known. We refuse to allow small things to hinder the most important thing. I mean, don't you imagine Paul could have just quit his ministry because of the split up? I mean, I could see it happen. He could have had to take a couple years off to recover from losing his friend Barnabas, from, from, from Barnabas choosing Mark over him. That could have easily derailed the mission, but yet he pressed forward, found a new protege to, to adopt and to lead and to guide. And no matter what he faced, he continued to choose the spirit over the flesh. You, you see, I think this is, is a, where this all kind of takes us. Faith is never strengthened passively. And let me explain. Our faith is not strengthened by sitting in church and somebody preaching very strongly over us or praying passionately over us or bowing at an altar for something to be given to us. Faith is not strengthened passively. Faith is strengthened when we actively respond to the word of God. So church is important. Prayer is important. The anointing of God is important. But that's all a part of the process to lead us to respond for the sake of the work of God. Faith is not strengthened passively, it's strengthened actively when we respond for the sake of God's work. Now, what is driving our heroes in Acts? You know what is constant no matter what? The mission is driving them. So that's how they're being, their faith is getting strengthened because they're always responding, they're always moving, they're always pressing forward. They're always furthering the gospel because their goal is to finish the mission. You hear Paul talk about this all the time as if he might be the one that leads the final person to Jesus. Paul, of course, you're crazy. You're never going to lead everybody to Jesus. But Paul lived each day as if he may just get the chance to lead everybody to Jesus. Paul was driven by this, this, what did he say to Timothy? Finish the race. Finish the mission. Paul, you can't do it all yourself. I'm not trying to do it all myself. I'm just trying to do all that I've been called to do. Which may just be finishing the mission. That's why little things don't threaten to halt the church like they do in our day. Think about how easily our churches are set back or held back. One little thing goes wrong and we're all stunned and we're all stunted. Satan knows this and he works harder because of it. Or he doesn't have to work as hard, but he stirs up a lot. But church, when our eyes are on Jesus, when our focus is on the gospel, when his mission is the most important thing, so important that nothing can stop it, Satan can't win. And he can't stop us. 
Isn't that exactly what Jesus said in that scripture we look at again and again? I think it's important for us to be reminded of this again and again. Jesus said, on this rock, the rock of the confession, the rock of the, of, of the, the finished work of Christ, on this rock I will build my church and hell will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom. And you know what he's saying there? Hell can't stop you and you have the key that always opens the door. So keep pushing forward. No matter what happens, the gospel still works. The message can still change lives. At this point, we've seen how Paul is head down, focused on moving forward, building up the church. The next passage goes on to underscore just how much God was using him. And we'll close with verses 6 through 10. Now, when they had gone through uh, Pergia, they, in the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Now, I'll explain that. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So, passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas... And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord has called us to preach the gospel to them. So let me kind of try to explain in, a, in just a minute or two what this, the Spirit doesn't allow this and the Spirit didn't permit this. This is the map of Paul's second missionary journey. I know it's blown out, but if you look at the back of your Bibles, you'll probably get a better, better version of it. Over here to your right is where they start. Antioch's just off the screen. They go from Antioch to Tarsus. Now, they're retreading ground that they started in back in Acts 13 and 14. Iconium, Derby, Lystra, Antioch of, of Pisidia. Now, there in Fergia, where the line goes up, where it begins to go on a sharp northern uh, stint, that is the, tr the trail they take from Antioch to Troas there on the, f the left part of the screen uh, before, the water, before you get to the water. Now notice the top part there is Bithynia, and then you see there in the middle is the word Asia. Now Asia does not mean what Asia does today. In the ancient world, Asia was what they refer to as the northern area of Turkey. The other parts of the, the Asia, continent of Asia, you know, that was a whole other thing, and they didn't call it Asia back then. They refer to Asia as this area um, that you'll see some cities in there. Uh, Ephesus is one of them um, that Paul ends up going to later. So what does it mean the Holy Spirit doesn't allow them to go to Bithynia, doesn't allow them to go to Asia? Let me try to explain that. This isn't to say that God did not want these people to hear the gospel because Paul himself would spend three years in Asia a few years down the road. Acts 18, 19, 20, he spends Three years in Ephesus. He spends three years in this area of Asia. So it wasn't like he was never going to go there. Peter would end up going to Bithynia. Peter in 1 Peter writes to the churches in Bithynia. So it wasn't that God didn't want those people to get saved. This is very specific and personal to Paul and his mission. Paul quickly realizes he was being led this way. So when the Bible says he couldn't stop here, he couldn't go there. This is God saying, Paul, I need you to get to a certain place and get there quickly. Not going to stop, not going to take breaks, not, not, not going to set up in this town or this town. You're going, I need you to, go, I need you to get to Troas, A-S-A-P. 
Now he quickly realizes why God is urging him along this path because one night in this journey, he has a vision and it's a man of Macedonia pleading them to come in that direction. Or a man from Macedonia, doesn't say a man in Macedonia, it's a man of Macedonia who no doubt maybe had been coming toward Paul to meet him and get him to come that way. Now, something very interesting that we'll spend a little bit of time next week talking about, notice in Verse number 10, there's a change in the, pro, in, the, in, the, in the narration. Verse 10, it says, now after he had seen the vision, immediately we. Now back up to verse number 7, and you'll see the word they. So somewhere between 7 and 10, it goes from they to we. And the only reason it goes from they to we is because the narrator is no longer writing about the journey. He's writing as a member of the journey. Does that make sense? Because we implies that Luke is now part of the team. Could he be the man of Macedonia that Paul saw in a vision that came to meet them halfway to lead them into Greece? We don't know. It could be. He just could have joined in this period. But it's not a coincidence, that I think, that this vision happens and then the story goes from they to we. You know why this is a big deal? Because their journey from Troas to Macedonia, across the water there, that is a very major moment because they exit the Middle East and they go into Greece. And it's into Greece where the gospel begins to truly disrupt the empire. And it's through Greece they get to Rome. And it's through Greece the gospel begins to spread around the, the, the main uh, t- big, biggest cities and, and make the biggest impact in a lot of key players. It's into Greece that they go to Athens and Corinth and Philippi and Thessalonica. It's into Greece that the gospel really becomes a worldwide phenomenon. We'll get there. Ultimately, though, I think the message for us in this text is that God is always calling us wherever we can make Christ most known to the most needed to the best of our ability. Why was God urging Paul to go to pass by Bithynia, pass by Asia? Why was he trying to get him to Macedonia? It's because there was somebody there that needed him and there was a whole nation waiting to hear So God is always calling you and me to make Christ most known to the most needed, to the best of our ability. When we show that we are focused forward like Paul did in these passages, we make ourselves available for God to lead and direct and use. So I want to leave you with a few questions that kind of ties all these little passages together tonight. How determined are we to work through our disagreements for the sake of the mission? Are we quick to divert or depart because of division and disagreement? Paul was determined. That's how he gets from the division back in 15 to this very crucial crossroads in 16. Are we willing to be stretched from our comfort zone in order to be strengthened in our faith? How in the world did Paul have the the, the conviction to follow God down this specific road because he was stretched 
He lost his best friend. He joined a new group. He begins to go into a new territory, uncharted territory. Are we seeking, I guess I took that one off. Are we seeking the Lord so as not to be distracted? Is our one desire to move forward with the message? That's a big question. Is our one desire to move forward? Paul's was. The answer to these questions determines how much we can, use, we can be used in our daily lives, our personal lives, our professional lives. At this point in Acts, I believe this is what Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians 16. He says, a great wide door for effective work is open to me and there are many adversaries. Right here in Acts 16, a great wide door has opened. The door to Greece, the door to the mainland of Europe, the door to changing the world. Every day, a great wide door is open for you. There are many adversaries. Sometimes the biggest adversary is the one you see in the mirror. There are many adversaries. Satan works to divide us, distract us. Let's go to the next one. Discourage us and divert us, deceive us and dissuade us from the mission. There are many adversaries, but the question is, how committed are we to God's word for guidance? How much have we entrusted each step to God's spirit? Clearly, Paul was committed to God's word. Clearly, Paul had entrusted each step to God's spirit. Have you? Have we? No matter what disagreements we have, no matter what bumps in the road, no matter what stretching we go through, if we have committed to God's word and entrusted to his spirit, we will arrive where he wants us to be. The great wide door for effective work will always be before us and that opportunity will be ours to take advantage of. Church, thank you so much for being with us tonight. May God bless each and every one of us and may we hear from these passages of scripture and may we see our own lives in these stories and how Paul responded. May we make those same decisions for the sake of the gospel, for the furthering of the gospel, for the finishing the mission. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for guiding us. Thank you for leading us with your spirit. God, I pray you might would use this scripture tonight to encourage every one of us to not let disagreements and divisions get us down, to not let things that take us out of our comfort zone discourage us or dissuade us. Help us to stay as determined as ever. Help us to stay focused forward. Help us to move and press forward no matter what. Father, thank you so much for your word that shows us how Paul responded to these bumps in the road and how he continued to stay focused, how he continued to stay committed to finishing the mission. Lord, help us to consider this word. Help us to be challenged by it. Help us to be comforted by the Spirit of God who is always willing to guide us to the place that we might make Christ most known to the most people, to the best of our ability. We ask all this in his amazing name. Amen.